Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Jordan Osserman. Today, I'm very excited to bring you part two of our interview with Amy Allen and Mari Ruti on their book, Critical Theory Between Klein and Lacan, published by Bloomsbury Press this year, 2019. Uh, In part one, we spent some time discussing the overall structure of the book and the way it was written, um, and then we entered into a really fascinating conversation on the topic of the ego in Klein and Lacan uh, and the notion of maternal fusion and kind of a variety of clinical questions. Um, And I think I speak for all three of us in saying that the conversation was so much fun and left us with the sense of wanting to continue uh, so much that um, recording the second part made sense. So if you missed it, uh, you may want to pause this podcast and listen to part one first, as today I'm hoping we'll explore in depth um, some of the themes that we didn't cover previously. Uh, So before we begin, I'll just introduce our authors once more. Amy Allen is a liberal arts professor of philosophy and women's gender and sexuality studies and head of the philosophy department at Penn State. She is the author of several books, including most recently, The End of Progress, Decolonizing the Normative Foundations of Critical Theory, and that's from Columbia University Press. And Mari Ruti is Distinguished Professor of Critical Theory and of Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Toronto. She's the author of 12 books, most recently Penis Envy and Other Bad Feelings, The Emotional Costs of Everyday Life, and Distillations, Theory, Ethics, Affect. Uh, And just for the sake of the listeners um, to let you know, in the book, Amy Allen kind of takes uh, the the position of um, arguing uh, along the lines of Klein, uh, and Mari Ruti offers a kind of Lacanian perspective. Um, So Amy and Mari, thank you so much for agreeing to join us once more. Thank you for re-inviting us. Yes, thank you for having us back. Um, Yeah, as I said, I'm I'm really grateful that that you've agreed to this. So um, so let's let's get started. Um, I think the the question that was kind of burning in my mind that we didn't get to when time ran out um which kind of occurs in different ways across the book um was uh this to do with the issue of universalism um so there's a point at which amy you admit in the book that um you get a bit uh uncomfortable about um ways in which Klein can sometimes make universalizing statements about what human beings are like. Uh, And you said that the kind of Foucauldian in you um, is sometimes uh, wary of that. Uh, So could you say a bit more about what that's about? Um, And then maybe, uh, Amy, you could um, kind of tell us what you think about it from a Lacanian perspective. Um, Sure. Well, I mean, I don't, I think it's pretty well known, you know, by, by folks who work in critical theory that, um, Foucault had a very complicated relationship to psychoanalysis. Um, and I think many people who consider themselves to be committed Foucauldians are quite skeptical of psychoanalysis and it has a lot to do. I mean, it's a number of things. It's of course the, um, the, the main issue is, is the problem of normalization and the way that the history of psychoanalysis is connected, 
Um, unfortunately, with kind of normalizing positions around homosexuality um, and sexual minorities um, more generally, but there's also um, a real suspicion just from the kind of genealogical side of Foucault's work for any and all kind of strong claims about human nature. So there is a, a pretty famous and interesting debate that Foucault had with Noam Chomsky in the 70s, which is all around this question in which Foucault expresses a lot of skepticism about the, the concept of human nature and, you know, basically just argues that, you know, we have to think about human beings as always constituted in different ways and different social and historical, um, cultural, institutional contexts. Um, and I think um, this has been a big issue in the kind of uptake of um, psychoanalysis by the Frankfurt School as well, because a lot of work in the Frankfurt School is very committed to a kind of historicism and about um, about human beings, about subjectivity um, and rationality and so forth. And um, And so it's sort of like hard to know what to do with um, this question about human nature, which, which ultimately is also a question about the drives and the theory of the drives in psychoanalysis. Um, and, you know, the early Frankfurt school theorists kind of responded to this by taking up psychoanalysis in a more historicizing way. So they thought that psychoanalysis provides a really compelling account of subject formation in bourgeois capitalism, you know, under conditions of modern late capitalist societies. And so they kind of chose to interpret some of some key psychoanalytic ideas in a more historicized vein. And I think, you know, taking that idea seriously helps in some ways to um, mitigate this tension between at least tendencies in some strands of psychoanalytic theory to make strong claims about human nature. I mean, you know, one of the most kind of well-known and obvious would be when Freud calls the death drive an indestructible feature of human nature. Some, I think that's not the exact quote, but something along those lines in civilization and its discontents. And, um, you know, so, so it's sort of that side of psychoanalysis and then what do we do with that from a more social theoretical and social constructivist and historicist point of view. Um, one of the things I think is kind of interesting, the way that I try to think about Klein is to not take her claims um, about the drives and about um, kind of primary object relations, not to read those as strong claims about human nature per se. And this is a little bit reading her, I think, against the grain or against her own um, intentions maybe, but instead to think of them as claims about the human condition. So there's certain, you know, features of, um, of human um, experience that, for all we know, at least for now, are um, are not uh, changeable. So, for example, the fact that human beings are born helpless and have to spend a projected, a protracted amount of time um, helplessly dependent on their caregivers is something that's distinctive of human experience and human the human condition. And I think that already, you know, kind of there's a lot that one can say from a Kleinian perspective about how that. Uh, starting situation and the fundamental ambivalences, um, you know, the sort of combination of love and at the same time um, dependency and therefore aggression and frustration 
that are all bound up in that initial situation that one can say quite a lot about, about that experience and how that impacts, um, you know, what kind of creatures we become and, and our social and political life without having to make strong claims about human nature. Um, Mari, yeah, if you could kind of comment on that and, and maybe in particular, I was just thinking, um, one thing you say in the book is that you kind of go against the grain of a lot of contemporary progressive theory by saying that maybe there's some kind of universalism that is worth defending. Um, uh, yes, you absolutely. <laughs> you went to the one point in the book that is the most difficult for me. Um, <laughs> I'm sort of, <laughs> I'm sort of obsessed with this, um, this topic. I have been for a long time. Uh, honestly, I was probably obsessed with it already as an undergraduate at Brown. Um, and then I, I kind of retreated from the question of universalism versus particularism in graduate school, precisely because I, I decided to study contemporary theory instead of um, the social sciences. Um, but then it has come to haunt me in recent, this topic has come to haunt me in recent years. I feel like I never really resolved it for myself. And I uh, honestly, it's probably the case that there is no resolution to be had. Um, I can I can completely relate because I <laughs> I spent the first year of writing my dissertation obsessed with the same question and kind of trying to think through it through Badiou and and a variety of other thinkers and um, I think managed to at least productively put it to one side. But uh, yeah, interest. I'd be very interested to hear the, the outcome for you. Uh, yeah. So uh, the first thing I will say is that I have I have my myself changed my opinion on this, um, I would say, during the last three years. I mean, you're right that um, any mention of universalism more or less uh, automatically goes against the grain of my version of critical theory. I mean, no one in progressive critical theory, in sort of feminist theory, queer theory, um, uh, post-colonial, study, post-colonial studies, ethnic studies, um, and the, at the intersections of those fields, virtually no one um, likes the idea of universalism. And the reason for that is that, as Amy already alluded to, um, most thinkers in the field uh, align the notion of universalism with the Enlightenment and everything horrible that came with the Enlightenment, um, uh, colonialism, slavery, sexism, all of that. So it's very difficult to be a progressive critical thinker and even raise the question of universalism. Um, At the same time, uh, Lacanian theorists uh, have always... Um, attempted to theorize universalism in a way that is different from that enlightenment um, conceptualization. And um, so I I guess one of the first things I want to, another thing that I want to say right away is that a lot of progressive critics in my genre of critical theory have criticized Lacanian psychoanalysis, generally speaking, for being universalist, because it deals with things like the symbolic, the imaginary, and the real, and the lack in being and all of that. And people seem to assume that these are sort of um, uh, stable conceptions that cannot be historicized. And one thing that I've been trying to argue very strongly in in my work is that that's actually not the case, that something like the Lacanian symbolic order is not uh, a stable concept it's a historically specific understanding of the dominant um, socio-symbolic order that we are all inserted into when we are born. Uh, it doesn't mean that um, 
you know, every generation is, is born into the exact same symbolic order. So on that level, there is kind of a misconception about Lacan um, and his relation, the, the relationship of his theory to uh, universalizing notions of the human subject and its relationship to the world. Um, that said, obviously, there's always a kernel of universalism when you're talking about basic structures of psychic life and subjectivity. But, okay, anyway, to go back to the broader question, which is probably what you are asking me about, this really complicated uh, tension between uh, the way in which critical theory, broadly conceptualized, has attacked and criticized universalism for decades on the one hand, and um, how Lacanians, on the other hand, have tried to reconceptualize it. Um, And I used to be very much on the progressive critical side of things. I used to um, I used to, <laughs> I, I went after Zizek and Badieu pretty strongly on the question of universalism because I was really annoyed at the ways in which they tended to um, valorize a certain type of um, almost old-fashioned Marxism when they talked about uh, universalism and they tended to really ridicule things like feminism and queer theory and post-colonial studies, uh, kind of categorizing them as a naive um, genre of identity politics I really took issue with that because I felt like um, something like the equality of genders is just as much a universalist aim as is the eradication of capitalism Um, or the eradication of racism is just as much a universalist struggle as the eradication of um, poverty and so I had I had been arguing against the Lacanians and then but then Two or three years ago, I finally understood uh, where they're coming from, and I understood it because I got immersed in Todd McGowan's work. Um, his work is amazing. I really, really have learned um, so much from him. And I, I understood finally what the Lacanians are trying to do. They're basically saying that the universal is not something that is imposed on uh, people from above. Uh, the, un- the true universal can never be something that comes from the master. Rather, the universal is something that arises, invariably arises from the space of the marginalized. So, for instance, um, sexism cannot be a universal value because it arises from heteropatriarchy, whereas um, the, the fight for gender equality is a universal value because it arises from those who have been deprived of equality. Similarly, mm-hmm. um, something like Black Lives Matter is actually a universalist uh, political movement from this perspective because it advocates for the, the freedom and equality of everyone, not just black people. Whereas um, um, conservative political movements that uh, defend their specific identity against outsiders, such as white nationalism, are actually particularist movements um, uh, that uh, are intrinsically conservative. So once I realized that uh, Lacanians conceptualize universalism, true universalism, as something that can never be associated with the so-called discourse of the master, then I also started to um, uh, kind of become more amenable amenable to the idea that perhaps there is something to be said for advocating for certain types of universal values such as equality and freedom. I mean, my basic question is, can you really be a progressive thinker and not advocate for the equality of all people and not advocate for the freedom of everyone and not advocate for gender equality and the end of racism. I mean, what are we talking about when we are saying that we are anti-racist? I mean, either it's a universal value or it means nothing, 
right? So, but it's really complicated because um, it's the kind of thing that is going to make a lot of people angry. Thank you. That yeah, that's really helpful, actually. I mean, uh, one thing I, I don't suppose this was really central to either of your arguments, but I just kind of highlighted with a question mark was that there was a bit of an aside around how the views that you've both developed around universalism made you dislike um, the Oedipus complex, psychoanalytic theorizations of the Oedipus complex and sexuality, which maybe would be an interesting way to enter into this a bit deeper. So um, yeah, uh, maybe Amy, would you care to say something about what, why that is? Um, well, yeah. I mean, first, maybe I would just say, um, just to add on to what Mari just said, which was really, really helpful. And I think even maybe goes a little bit further into detail on this question than what we what we wrote in the book. But um, the question of universalism, you know, comes up in a very different way in, in, let's say, my wing, my world of critical theory and Frankfurt School critical theory, where for the last 30 or 40 years, the the dominant figure has been Jürgen Habermas, who is a strong defender of enlightenment universalism and um, in, in a very particular sort of way. But um, so, but I think a lot of then the conversation has been really different than the one that's been taking place in Lacanian critical theory um, because the push has been sort of in the opposite direction to try to um, let's say from more people who are more inspired by Foucault or other, you know, interested in questions around race and gender and sexuality to try to push um, for more kind of historicized reflection on the, the kind of strong, what Habermas would call quasi transcendental universal claims he wants to make about, about rationality and so forth. So I think that, um, I mean, I actually don't, I'm not sure that Mari and I in the end, uh, disagree on the question of universalism, although I think we approach it from really different angles. Um, and that probably comes out in the book and it probably has to do with the different kind of context of critical theory in which we work. So I've been in some of my recent work, including my book, The End of Progress, I try to defend um, a a version of a kind of normative universalism that I I think has to go together with what I call a metanormative contextualism. Um, so the idea is to try to bring a kind of um, historicism, deep historicism about um, the kind of um, epistemological or justificatory status of norms, but to say that that goes together with um, claiming universality for norms like freedom and equality and um, justice and so on for, for some of precisely the same reasons that Mari just articulated. Okay. Anyway, I just wanted to say that because I think um, to try to, you know, yeah. sort of. That helps to draw yeah, the bridge exactly, in a exactly. way between. So now to your yeah. question about the Oedipus complex. I mean, uh, well, I mean, I don't know that I have anything profoundly original or interesting to say about why I'm nervous about universalizing the Oedipus complex. I mean, I think there's been, you know, uh, lots of important work done on, on that question and the, and the, concerns about whether one can break free of a sort of normalizing conception of gender and sexuality while retaining some, um, at least, you know, orthodox notion of um, the Oedipal complex. I mean, I think we could, you know, discuss that, obviously, and there are ways of interpreting it that are, um, I think, more, um, more productive, more feminist than others. But, you know, it's obviously a problem over which a lot of ink has been spilled about the relationship between 
for example, feminism and queer theory to psychoanalysis. So one of the things I find really attractive about Klein's view, actually, and um, this is one of the, I, I don't know that I realized this initially, but as I got more into her work, I found it to be a really compelling feature. And this, I think, is something that distinguishes her from Lacan, certainly, um, is that because she is so focused on the pre-edible stages of psychic development, um, I think her main psychoanalytic and metapsychological innovations and contributions actually don't depend on a story about oedipalization. I mean, that's not to say she didn't believe in it or adhere to the theory of oedipalization. She, she absolutely did. And if you read like her case histories and, you know, it's all over her work that she, um, you know, was committed to that, the story of psychosexual development in Freud and applied it in her work and so on. But, but the two positions, the paranoid schizoid and the um, depressive position, which are the kind of core of her metapsychology are are pre-edible and they don't really in any way, I think, depend on that story. Um, and so I find that really productive. I think, I suspect, I mean, I don't you know, know, but I, I think this may be one reason that Klein's work has been taken up in really productive ways in queer theory, because it just, you don't have to take on as much of that baggage and which then you have to, yeah, which you then have to kind of grapple with and figure out how to, you know, sort of, uh, read it from a queer feminist perspective. Um, and that's just not as much of an issue in Klein, at least in, in that aspect of her work. Again, I mean, I'm not denying that she uses edible concepts and so on. She does, but I just think in that, um, that sort of core of her metapsychology is, is really kind of pre pre edipalization. I'm curious though, Mari, because so the pre-edible is is one way, I guess, to, to at least potentially temporarily or for, uh, sort of sidestep some of these some of these issues. But then a lot of ink has been spilled, particularly by Lacanian, saying, "Well, in our Lacanian version of the Oedipus complex, we have somehow overcome the issues of heteronormativity and you know uh, put things in a way in which um, it's not a straightforward kind of uh, Western." bourgeois family narrative, but is actually uh, something a bit different. So so how come you said, Mari, that that didn't interest you so much? Uh, it doesn't, and that may just be kind of an idios- idiosyncratic preference. Um, but honestly, I have, and uh, I don't want to insult anyone, but <laughs> I have never, <laughs> I have never really found um, that particular genre of Lacanian uh, line of thinking very convincing. And I, I think that there is, um, I guess, I don't think that it's really necessarily a productive use of one's energies to try to rescue the Oedipus complex specifically um, from uh, accusations of heteronormativity and universalism, uh, kind of false kind of universalism. So it, it just hasn't been an issue for me because I think that there are so many other aspects of Lacanian theory and psychoanalytic, psychoanalytic theory that are a lot more interesting than that. And um, I guess in res- in more direct uh, response to your question about the Oedipus complex, uh, I think that uh, one reason that it doesn't... Um, fulfill the requirements of universalism for me is precisely that I do think that it is um, the dis- it, it's a it's a result or product of the discourse of the master as I just said from the perspective uh, that I have come to uh, support 
the true universal can never support support the discourse of the master. And I can't shed the the impression that the, the theorization of the Oedipus complex, even in its revisionary forms, is falls within the discourse of the master. It falls within a certain type of conventional morality. I mean, I understand that Lacanians have tried to reconceptualize it um, in less heteronormative ways, and that's made possible in part by the fact that everything for Lacan is a matter of discourse. So as we discussed in our last session, uh, there's always a way of, uh, around gender essentialism in Lacan because it's all about signifiers at the end. Uh, nevertheless, there's this this gnawing sense that there's something about the Oedipus complex that does follow the dictates of conventional morality in a way that, for me at least, it uh, immediately um, kind of excludes it from the realm of true universalism. And does that go all the way through to the kind of Lacanians who are really obsessed with the whole formulas of sexuation? <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> it does. <laughs> I, I, yes, uh, I'm just going to leave it at that. It does for me. <laughs> Fine, well, we don't need to spend the whole podcast discussing those because <laughs> yeah. I'm sure many podcasts already have. Um, okay, so um, there are two um, interesting dichotomies that are kind of... Um, uh, I guess belong to each of you in their own way. I suppose there's um, Amy uh, talks a lot in the book about the intersubjective and the intrapsychic, um, and then um, Mari, um, there's this idea you have of um, the constitutive trauma versus um, circumstantial trauma. So I was wondering um, if you could um, kind of briefly introduce what these distinctions are about to the listeners, um, and then we could think a little bit about um, if they relate to each other in any way. Um, so, uh, Amy, would you would you care to tell us a bit about what, what is the intersubjective versus the intrapsychic, and and what why does it uh, what does it mean to you? Yeah, sure. I mean, I do think those two distinctions uh, relate, um, although maybe you know we we need to say a bit more to kind of get clear on how. Um, but I mean, the, that language of the intrasubjective and the intra intrapsychic and the intersubjective. Sorry, is. Um, I think I first encountered it in the work of Jessica Benjamin, actually, who um, I've never really been able to sort out what exactly her relationship is to Klein. I, I don't think she describes herself as a Kleinian, but it seems to me it's very Kleinian in spirit, this aspect of her work anyway. Um, but um, the basic distinction is one between the role of um, un unconscious fantasy on the intrapsychic side and then um, intersubjective relations, you know, with other people or, or what we might call more generally object relations in the constitution of the self. And one of the things I find really compelling about Klein is the way that she brings these two dimensions of um, human experience and the constitution of subjectivity together in a really complicated way. So um, part of the reason I find this really interesting is that, that there's been a kind of tendency within um, Frankfurt School critical theory, we may have talked about this a little bit in the last session, you know, which has, which has not really engaged with psychoanalysis very much over the last, um, say, 30 years, maybe even 40 years. Um, but to the extent that it has, it's mostly engaged with um, certain thinkers in the object relations tradition and has endorsed a kind of intersubjective or relational conception of psychoanalysis that um, that does not accept the theory of the drives. And the result is, um, I think, and I'm not the only one who's argued this, people like Noel McAfee, um, 
have, and Joel Whitebook and others have made this case really compellingly as well, that this results in a kind of very flattened out, um, you know, conception of the self that, um, that really doesn't do justice to the role of negativity and ambivalence and aggression in human psychic life and in human social relations. So you have a kind of intersubjective account of the self that, um, that sort of gives the impression that selves are uh, intersubjective or social or linguistic all the way down. And, you know, because it, we jettison the theory of the drives and, um, and don't give a kind of robust account of the unconscious or of unconscious fantasy. And so then there's this kind of flattening out of intersubjectivity that um, doesn't, you know, that doesn't do justice then to the richness and complexity. And so mm. on the other side, maybe you have more, um, you know, psychoanalytic views that focus um, quite a lot on the intrapsychic and on the unconscious and so on. Um, and um, the question is how to bring these two dimensions together. And I think Klein really does that very well through her notion of unconscious fantasy. So for her, the infant is object related from the very start. And so I'm sort of calling that maybe the intersubjective moment in Klein. So there is a relationship between a kind of not totally coherent, but, and fragmentary and so on, but still, um, an ego, um, and its objects from the very beginning, but that relationship is, uh, filtered and, um, mediated, filtered through and mediated by unconscious fantasy also from the very beginning. And then the kind of difficult question, which in some ways, um, as, uh, R.D. Hinchelwood says in, in one of his um, writings on Klein is like the, the project of a lifetime is to try to sort out like in our relations with others, you know, what is a projection based on our unconscious fantasy and what is in some way, you know, doing justice to the experience and the perspective of the other mm. person. And it's those two dimensions. And, and so I, the way I sort of understand Klein's view is we start out with, you know, where unconscious fantasy plays a really um huge role there. And then we struggle to try to come to understand um, more and more the actual perspectives of the actual others with whom we are engaged in, you know, in relationships while acknowledging that we can't ever fully close that gap because to close it would be to just close down the space of unconscious fantasy, which is not neither possible nor I think desirable from Klein's point of view. But there are, there is a way to get kind of closer, you know, to try to bring our internal and external objects into closer alignment. And that would be to kind of try to approach, you know, to do justice to the other person, let's say, if you want to use that language, um, rather than sort of continually projecting one's own emotional states onto them to just kind of put it loosely. So I'm wondering just before we jump into Mari's uh, response, is that, would that potentially be one way of trying to understand what an aim of a Kleinian analysis might be to kind of be able to sort through unconscious fantasy enough that we can have some better appreciation of what's going on in reality with another person? Um, I think, I mean, that is one of the things that Klein would say the goal of analysis was for her to try to bring, I mean, it's, um, she would talk about bringing one's internal and external objects into closer alignment or something like this. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, again, acknowledging that that gap can never be fully closed, but that that's still a, a sign of both, um, or it's a marker, both of kind of emotional maturity 
like, you know, if, if kind of infant psychic development goes well, that's a capacity we gain, you know, through that process, but then also a goal for analysis as well. That's really, that's really helpful. So yeah, Mari, could you say something about um, the, the distinction you have between constitutive versus circumstantial trauma? And then maybe we could think about if, if these two relate. Uh, yes. So this has um, been another obsession of mine for, for a long time now. I mean, so just to give you the gist of the distinction that I draw in my mind and in my writing, uh, when I talk about constitutive um, uh, forms of alienation, I'm basically talking about, or, or lack, I'm basically talking about the Lacanian notion of lack in being, the fact that um, there is this emptiness or nothingness at the core of subjectivity that is, and here comes the word again, universally there for every subject, um, at least in the Western context. Um, and then, um, but and you know, a lot of Lacanians stay at that level of analysis because that is what Lacan gives us. However, because I have been seeped in other versions of progressive critical theories, such as feminist theory and queer theory and ethnic studies, um, that, that has never been enough for me because I have understood that beyond this kind of a constitutive lack, there are various forms of more circumstantially uh, specific lack uh, or wounding or dispossession or um, alienation. And so I have drawn this distinction between constitutive forms of lack and circumstantial forms of lack in an attempt to um, admit that there are uh, social inequalities that that augment, um, I shouldn't even say augment our constitutive lack, but that are kind of an other, an alternative layer of lack that certain individuals are subjected to um, that we can't ignore. Mm. In, in other words, when it comes to this particular issue, I don't think that the universal understanding of lack uh, as constitutive of human subjectivity goes far enough. We, we need another layer that takes into account the various ways in which um, social inequalities and social marginalization impose lack and dispossession and alienation on specific subjects because of their identity position, because of their gender, uh, sexuality, race, um, and other factors. Mm. And um, I think that this, that the inability or unwillingness to think about these two versions of lack, these two layers of lack simultaneously is one reason why there is so much tension between Lacanian theory on the one hand and other forms of progressive critical theory on the other, um, because the, the battle lines are very clearly drawn on this. So people in feminist theory and affect theory, queer theory, tend to focus on the circumstantial, uh, on, on these non-constitutive forms of alienation and dispossession and lack. And they get really irritated when Lacanians can't hear them, when Lacanians keep just talking about constitutive lack. And I understand their frustration because I agree with them that that doesn't really go far enough. But for me personally, in my work, um, I have never seen uh, these two levels of lack as being mutually exclusive. I don't think that they, um, they can, basically, I think that they can very easily be theorized together. And I'll just put this very simply. I mean, Let's imagine that a specific individual is uh, put into a situation where they are rendered lacking uh, in some circumstantial context, context specific way. My, my um, sense is that in such a situation, that particular individual is going to perhaps become very much more aware of their constitutive lack as well. 
Mm. Um, you know, when you're faced with something very difficult in your life that is completely idiosyncratic or has to do with social stru- structural inequality, you may in fact become much more aware of your constitutive lacking being or emptiness or nothingness than you might otherwise be. And so that's one way for me to think about very simply about how the two things can, two levels can be connected. Uh, and I, yeah. yeah, that I mean, that immediately also puts me into the frame of just thinking about, an, uh, you know, a successful analysis um, where, you know, if someone encounters an experience that is very traumatic for them or wounding, um, the hope would be, um, obviously, that not that that experience is kind of not recognized as um, wounding in and of itself, but also that the particular way in which it might be difficult for that person that links back to earlier experiences could be explored. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, I mean, in the last session, I, I emphasized the fact that from the Lacanian perspective, there is no cure for that constitutive, uh, lack, uh, whereas, uh, it would be very weird to say that there is no, I mean, okay, the cure is a very charged notion, but the idea that there's nothing to be done about more circumstantial forms of lack is very questionable because obviously there there actually are solutions. There are social solutions to context specific types of uh, dispossession, and so um, I, I, I'm, you know, when you're in analysis, I think that there has to be again you have to kind of work on two different levels. Where perhaps on on one level you have to recognize uh, if you are a Lacanian, uh, you have to kind of recognize that there is no ultimate cure for your existential malaise but on the other hand um, there are ways to work through other types of uh, wounding or traumatization and uh, there are ways to understand the social social um, causes of some of those um, forms of alienation Mm. and lack Um, yeah Hmm. so um, I suppose Amy you said you did think that that there was something related between these two ideas could could you say a bit more about um how they might relate to one another. Well, yeah, I mean, I I don't know if Mari would agree, but I do think they're both trying to pick out these two different levels of experience. One is more, let's say, social and environmental, and one is more, um, you know, sort of, let's say, outward facing, and the other is more inward facing. You know, it's the psychic, you know, kind of aspect of our basic constitution, however we understand that, whether you want to use Lacanian terminology of lack and being or, Kleinian terminology about, you know, um, about the depressive position and, um, you know, what it means to kind of achieve, uh, something like depressive standpoint. Um, so it seems to me that they're, they're both trying to think with these two distinctions, we're both trying to figure out how to think simultaneously on these two levels as being important, you know, kind of aspects of, um, a overall theory of subjectivity. And I would just say, you know, one of the things I find it's kind of interesting about the reception of Klein. Um, I mean, I'm here, I'm speaking of the reception of Klein more in the academic community, but, um, but this is a little bit, I think of how her work was, you know, interpreted early on. I think her view is really complicated. And for that reason, she's often kind of misunderstood in one from one side or the other. So there's a perception, I think now among some, um, even Lacanian theorists, uh, 
that Klein is just interested in, you know, environmental factors and like, it's all about, you know, whether you had a good enough mother or something. And in this way, I think she's read back through the later object relations tradition and sort of assimilated into that tradition somewhat, whereas her view is really distinct from a lot of the later object relations theorists, precisely because she was committed to drive theory and had a very strong notion of unconscious fantasy. And on the other hand, early on in her very you know important debate with Anna Freud, she was accused of not paying attention to the environment at all and only being interested in unconscious fantasy and you know so if you get such contradictory accusations it's a, it's a good sign that you're on the yeah, right track exactly exactly so you know and and I think she um I mean my understanding is that in her own um in her own analytic work she focused much more on unconscious fantasy and, and you know wasn't interested in asking people about their childhoods or something like that you know or, or not or their actual relations with their parents or something but um, but that's not to say, you know, that the environment or the, you know, the actual social or familial or intersubjective environment, it doesn't play an important role in her account. I, I think it does. It's very clear that, um, for example, for her, one needs um, a kind of stable relationship with a caregiver, a loving caregiver who who she would have identified as the mother. But, you know, I think we don't have to think of in such narrow um biological or gender normalizing terms, but you know, that one needs that in order to move into the depressive position. And if one doesn't have it, then it's going to be very difficult for the individual to navigate that transition. And so there's a way in which the, you know, the kind of environment, that level of experience play, you know, plays a, a really important role. And I guess one could say that, you know, certain kinds of um, familial breakdowns could be, I, I guess I'm saying those could be um, circumstantial forms of lack let's say, mm. to use Mari's terminology, um, that would have a deep impact then on, on an individual's development. Um, and there might be lots of different, you know, other it, kinds of experiences like that as well. Um, I don't know if Mari would agree with that or not, but that's how one bridge I can see between the two distinctions. Just to say, yeah, I mean, before Mari jumps in that, I think one of the things that's so admirable about the book and about your, your the work of uh, both of your work is that it's this kind of commitment to on to being able to theorize, you know, two areas that are normally thought of that are treated as so opposed uh, around, yeah, the kind of the realm of um, action in the world and politics and being able to change things, and the realm of the unconscious and and fantasy and um, constitutive lack in Lacanian terms, and kind of um, these two things that seem so impossible to bring together, and the kind of attempt to to be to, to use psychoanalytic theory and critical theory to bring them together. I, I appreciate that um, because um, I have always seen myself, generally speaking, as a scholar, um, as someone who is trying to reconcile the seemingly irreconcilable. I, I'm always trying to bring together discourses that seem uh, to go in totally different directions. And one of the things that I have uh, worked on hard in recent work besides this book is to theorize Lacanian psychoanalysis and affect theory together. Um, these two fields are often seen as completely incompatible, but for me, they are not. Um, and it isn't even a question of, let's say, necessarily drawing a direct link between constitutive lack and circumstantial forms of lack. It's uh, just a matter of acknowledging that both are important. So go back to um, 
your previous question about psychoanalysis um, as a clinical practice, um, I didn't really respond to to that very well. So I just want to add to what I said that, you know, let's say you're in analysis and um, you're feeling anxious. Um, I think that it would be very productive for the analyst to, on the one level, understand that maybe some of their um, anxiety comes uh, is caused by socioeconomic or other kind of structural inequalities. Um, and, you know, with that realization, there might be an understanding, there might come an understanding that the anxiety is, is not that person's own fault, for instance, so that there might be a degree of comfort that comes from the realization that you are not the cause of your own, own anxiety. At the same time, it would also be really helpful for that same analyst to understand that on another level, there is perhaps a level of anxiety that human beings can never get rid of so that any attempt to sort of try to theorize it away or uh, work through it or uh, try to get rid of it uh, is not going to, going to be productive. And so for me, it's not really a matter of uh, even trying to draw a direct link between the two of those, but rather just being willing to think about both of them simultaneously. And I think that one of the issues with uh, a lot of contemporary theories that people get kind of uh, trapped in their own crew of thinking to the point that they are unwilling to consider the other other side of things. Uh, this is very much the same issue as with universalism, where uh, the, the crux of the problem with universalism is that the two conceptualizations of universalism that people are using are completely incompatible. So people keep talking past each other because they don't understand that what they mean by universalism um, is completely, like, it's just completely, their definition of, of universalism is completely different from the other side's definition. And so uh, for me, it's just a matter of pro- uh, broadening the perspective and being willing to admit components of uh, theorization into your worldview that aren't already there naturally um, because of the way in which uh, specific fields have evolved. Huh. Yeah, that, that is, yeah, that really kind of clarifies um, the, the situation here. So um, I have a, a final kind of uh, substantive question, uh, and this one actually comes from a listener. Um, so because we've done uh, the second part, we've had the opportunity to, to hear what people, uh, what additional questions people have. Um, and, uh, and I think it's something that is kind of touched on in the book, so it's worth exploring a bit. Um, so someone asked if, if we could discuss a bit the differences and similarities between the uh, idea of aggression in Klein and Lacan. Um, and so, Amy, you talk a bit about the importance of aggression, and you mentioned it um, earlier on uh, in this discussion. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I mean, I think um, the first thing to say is that there's an important similarity between Klein and Lacan and that they're both theorists of the death drive in a really important sense. And, you know, the death drive plays a crucially important role I think for both of them, um, but um, it may be that they understand there. There's a divergence in terms of the kind of conceptualization of the death drive because Klein, I mean, she sort of starts from um, the idea of the ambivalence of life and death drives, and um, one of the other things that I find really attractive about her view is that she takes up Freud's late account of the death drive, but in a way that kind of leaves behind the speculative biological story of the Nirvana principle that he uses to 
articulate that theory, which as I'm sure you know, and the listeners to this podcast would know leads to a whole bunch of really complicated, you know, conceptual and, and uh, metapsychological problems. Um, and Klein sort of, for whatever reason, just sidesteps those and sort of takes as basic this distinction between um, life and death drives, which she understands as a distinction between, um, you know, a desire to uh, connect to others um, or to like sort of forge relationships with others. So it's a, it's a kind of version of Freud's late notion of Eros as the building up of unities, um, greater and greater unities uh, on the one hand, and then um, the death drive is something she she interprets as primary aggression. So, you know, there's not a story in Klein about um, about you know the the drive to inertia or returning to an inorganic state, and then the kind of complicated story about how aggression is a side effect of that. For her, the death drive just is primary aggression, and um, and it's um, you know it's it's a way just as the life drive or Eros is a way of relating to others. Lovingly, the death drive is a way of relating to others destructively or aggressively. Um, and, um, well, maybe I'll stop there. And then if you have follow-up questions, I could say more, but I think her view, I think that makes her view somewhat distinct from Lacan's, at least in terms of the way that it's understood conceptually and metapsychologically. Yeah. So Mari, I'm curious. I mean, I don't think it's a, uh, you would know better, but if it's a particular, if Lacan theorizes aggression that explicitly. No, I don't think so. Um, but I, I, I think that Amy is correct in uh, drawing an immediate link between aggression and the, and the death drive, which Lacan does theorize extensively. So, um, I mean, I'm kind of making a leap here, but uh, intuitively, I feel like whenever Lacan is talking about the death, death drive, he is on some level talking about aggression. And I guess I can try to succinctly uh, address this on three different levels um, in terms of the death drive. Um, on the sort of intrasubjective level, on, on the level of the individual psyche, you have the death drive um, a, um, in the form of jouissance, um, in the form of the kind of undeadness that a lot, a lot of Lacanians talk about. And it can take the form of kind of attacking the, the individual itself. I mean, this kind of over-agitation, um, over-jouissance, uh, over-animation, uh, kind of excessive anxiety that can um, be linked to jouissance is a way of thinking about how the individual can become aggressive toward itself. Then on the level of um, the um, intersubjective in relation to the small O other, you can think about aggression in terms of envy um, regarding the jouissance of the other. In other words, Lacan often talks about how there is this kind of an envious relationship that the subject uh, has vis-a-vis the imagined enjoyment of the other person, even if that enjoyment is actually, is actually not in reality happening, but you're imagining that it is, um, and it causes a certain type of um, uh, kind of lashing out. And then on the social level, I think on the sort of big other collective um, level, you can think about uh, aggression or the death drive from the Lacanian perspective in terms of the so-called ethical act that people like Zizek and Badieu have made so much of, which has to do with the destruction of the reigning symbolic order 
kind of Benjaminian uh, divine violence, the complete annihilation of uh, normativity and the social order and, all that, and everything that goes with that and the link that Lacanians make between that kind of aggression and social change and political effectiveness. Okay, well, that is extremely helpful and kind of um, a nice uh, preview also of, of a bit in the book where you where you discuss uh, the different ways that you can um, think about uh, this 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 problem. Um, so again, <laughs> there's uh, so many more questions that I'd like to ask, but um, hopefully this leaves the listeners with the understanding um, that it's really worth reading the book uh, because we can't uh, cover all the material in it. Um, there's so much. Uh, there's so many more fascinating topics that you two discuss. Um, so I absolutely would recommend that everyone who hears this um, goes on and buys the book um, and uh, comes up with their own questions, maybe <laughs> maybe to to send you to by email if they want. Um, but uh, last time we, um, we we used the the traditional new books and psychoanalysis question of um, to end of of what you're working on next. Um, so I thought maybe now I would just ask. Um, what what have you been reading, or what what have you read recently uh, that that inspired you, whether um, whether related to psychoanalytic theory or not? Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, wow. Uh, pretty much every okay. So I have this practice of assigning texts in my courses that I have never read before. Uh, this is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so pretty much, and, but I know enough about the field to uh, usually be right in um in kind of guessing what might compel compel me so i just assign things that i think are going to uh somehow speak to me or um or enable me to think more deeply about my research project so uh all the things that i have read in the context of teaching um bad feelings in recent years um have really spoken to me and in that context um i have taught a lot of texts by um in in Af- within affect theory so uh people like uh Sian and i and um lauren perlant and sarah ahmed their work has been really compelling to me uh, uh however the person who and i already mentioned this earlier the person whose work really just blows me away every time is todd mcgowan and mm. i had a chance to read um ahead of publication, his forthcoming book, The Identity Trap, which, yeah, it just completely blew my mind. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure that you will interview him uh, when the book comes out. Um, it's exactly about the question of universalism versus particularism in contemporary political theory and um, also in political movements. And it's, abs- it's just a phenomenal uh, defense of universalism. Um, it's the most phenomenal defense of universalism I have ever read from a pers- from the perspective of someone who is seeped in progressive theory, who is really knowledgeable about feminism, queer theory, ethnic studies, post-colonial, post-colonial studies, in addition to also being uh, familiar with Marxism and Lacanian theory. Um, so yeah, that book, it, it's the kind of thing where I sit there and I am so excited that I can basically, I can't contain myself. So this is a moment where, <laughs> when the jouissance of the real is really, really palpable, where I'm just kind of going crazy because the ideas are so good. I'll just yeah. leave it. Yeah. <laughs> good. Well, that's quite an endorsement. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I could mention a couple of things that might be of particular interest to listeners 
to this podcast. So, uh, so one is a relatively new book. It's been out a couple of years now by David McKeever or McIver. I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name. And it's called Morning in America, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, in Morning in America. Um, and it uh, basically draws on Klein's work to do an analysis of um, race relations and particularly thinking about the work of truth and reconciliation commissions in post-civil rights um, contexts, um, or I guess I should say contexts where there were there was violence around civil rights. So he looks at um, he doesn't look at the you know the case of truth and Re- reconciliation commissions in South Africa, which of course is is very well known, but at a um, maybe somewhat lesser well known less well known example of a truth and reconciliation commission in, I believe it's Greensboro, North Carolina, which was conducted in the wake of violence that happened during the civil rights era there. And it's a really fascinating kind of um, Kleinian-based account of thinking about political community and the prospects for reconciliation um, in a way that's really attentive to the dangers of false forms of reconciliation, you know, sort of like the version of reconciliation that would say like, Oh, we've, everything's fine and our community's healed and we've put everything back together and it's all good now. Um, so he's really attentive to the kind of dangers that that kind of false form of reconciliation might hold and tries to develop a model of, um, reconciliation that's much more open-ended, much more fractured and fractious, much more ambivalent, but still, um, is a way, I think a very interesting and productive way of rethinking, political community in the wake of really serious episodes of um, racist political violence. It's a, it's a really fantastic book and a very, very interesting reading of Klein. Um, and I also have been reading a new book that just came out this spring or summer, I believe, by Noelle McAfee. I know we just, Mari's read this book as well because we discuss it briefly in the um, in our book, it's called Fear of Breakdown, Politics and Psychoanalysis. And that's a really interesting use, again, of the object relations tradition, more more Winnicott than Klein, but a little bit of Klein as well, to try to think about, you know, to try to do a diagnosis, I guess, of um, the extreme polarization in our politics right now, the kind of splitting and, you know, twin uh versions of idealization and demonization that go on that structure a lot of contemporary politics and then brings that whole psychoanalytic literature together in a really interesting way with theories of deliberative democracy and tries to show how certain kinds of deliberative democratic models not not you know can actually um give us a way of understanding not so much how we can change our minds or come to accept different reasons about, you know, political views, but instead have this kind of affective process of working through where we can actually expand our understanding of political community and come not to necessarily agree with people that we, you know, tend to disagree with politically, but at least to see them as to experience them as um, other subjects, you know, who have their own, valuable point of view. So to avoid the tendency to, to demonize our political opponents. And it's a really important book, I think, given what's going on in American, not just American politics, but also in American politics right now. So, um, 
Yeah, I can I can see how both your recommendations, the 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 books you admire, weave their way into into your own thinking because um, these themes are definitely ones that are also encountered in one way or another uh, in your book itself. Um, so, Mari and Amy, thank you again so much for agreeing to do this um, second the second podcast. It's been such a pleasure, um, and yeah, hope to have you back uh, when the next book is out. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you, Jordan. I really appreciate it.